This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 28th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Med Zoller is coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. And today we're going to talk about a few things that happened this week. Uh, first, we're going to talk briefly about proposed regulations that were issued related to information reporting from digital asset brokers on Form 1099-DA. Uh, uh, that'll be beginning next year. Or I should say actually beginning in 26 or 25 transactions. So we'll have a little more time than we thought we'd have. We also have an IRS delaying another requirement in the law. This would be the requirement for high-income employees to make employer plan contributions, catch-up contributions, designated Roth accounts. We're going to push that back until plan years beginning after December 31st, 2025. In theory, that was supposed to start again next January. So we've got a two-year pushback there. And finally, we'll talk about IRS release on the 2024 healthcare premium tax credit percentages published by the IRS this year. You know, we're heading up towards the end of the year. We're heading up towards open enrollment season for uh, the plans on the exchanges. So yeah, we're going to have the percentages and all those things for next year to get that into play. Well, let's start out though with the proposed regulations on digital asset transactions. They were issued by the IRS. It's regulations 122793-19 to be published in the Federal Register on Tuesday, August the 29th. And they were actually released by the IRS on August the 25th, along with a news release entitled Treasury and IRS Propose, Propose Regulations on Reporting by Brokers for Sales or Exchanges of Digital Assets, New Steps Designed to End Confusion, Help Taxpayer, and Aid High Income Compliance Work. And that was the news release 2023-153, and that was issued on August the 25th. Now, if you remember right, we had the Infrastructure Act uh, in 2021, the IIJA, that added reporting requirements on brokers for such transactions, you know, for transactions related to sales of digital assets. And that was one of the revenue raisers involved in that bill or the infrastructure bill. And what ended up with that, it was to have taken effect for transactions beginning in January 1st of 23, so we should have been already capturing that data. And the reports would have come out in January of 24 for 23. The IRS announced earlier this year that they were not going to require uh, the reporting, at least until regulations came out. And as a practical matter, they're just now getting around to the regulations from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act provision here. And now they're pushing us back even further or when these reports would come down. Okay. It would require reporting on transactions that take place in 2025. The first reports would come out in early 2026. And in fact, we would go all the way into then the 26 tax year before they would be required to report gains and losses, similar to how it's reported on the 1099B. But they also don't have regulations right now out as part of this package, proposed regulations, or exchange a basis information if a taxpayer moves from one broker to another broker, uh, as we currently have when we're talking about brokerage, brokerages dealing in standard securities, right, stocks, bonds, etc. 
Uh, we don't have that for this. So again, it would be gains and losses, but apparently until the uh, rules for exchanging basis information was to be somehow thrashed out, uh, it, won't, it will only be if you stay with the same exchange for all transactions. And that would be part of the deal. So the gain loss tracking would not show up until 26 and would be somewhat limited. Now it will be reported on a new form 1099DA. So this would be like the 1099B, but instead for digital assets. Digital assets, as you should know, generally are things like cryptocurrencies um, and non-fungible tokens or NFTs, if you only know the uh, shortcut name of it. That's part of what would be there. The theory was Congress felt that these were not properly being reported by taxpayers. Well, Congress wasn't the only one that felt that. A number of you know, studies to look at the issue or IRS, when they obtained data from the exchanges, uh, discovered that, yes, there was quite a bit of unreported activity going on in this arena. So because of that, you know, the idea is we'd have information reporting and that would raise money because people would end up paying the taxes that they were already obligated to pay but currently the government didn't know they had to pay them. The government didn't have the info on it. So they had a tough, tough ways of enforcing. Now I should add in the interim one, you know, the IRS has gotten very, very good at uh, tracing down crypto. In fact, there was an article this week that talked about that treasury has so much crypto now that there is a concern that if they were to dump their crypto on the market and they don't really worry about disrupting a market when they sell their assets, they just hold them until such time as they finally, it's clear it will be, you know, the asset will be the government's for good and then convert it over to cash for the obvious reason that Congress is going to complain if they're holding it and speculating, right? And don't convert to cash and it goes down and they're not going to give any credit if it goes up, let's be honest. But secondly, they can't really sell it and convert it to cash immediately because of the risk that a cryptocurrency could go way up. And if for whatever reason, a court was to rule, that in fact the party it had been seized from has a right to get that currency back. You know, the government could be on the hook for a virtually unlimited amount of gain unless they have the actual currency. But as I say, the issue now is the their numbers and their inventory has gotten so high that we actually have concern that they could move the price if they actually got a bunch that went on the market at once that freed up under the rules. So it's kind of interesting as we go down that path. Now, interesting other thing. First thing is the definition of who's a broker would actually be much broader than you might expect. Now, it will not, you know, we will have issues like that. So generally, even parties that aren't true brokers in the sense of where you have an account with them and you keep uh, crypto on deposit with them, you know, like your traditional, what the, the role of somebody like Schwab or Merrill Lynch or one of those plays in the uh, stocks and bonds market, they're not really like that, but you just have a party that enables an exchange of secure of the crypto. It could be an exchange for other assets, payment structures, whatever, exchanges for other crypto. They will all be involved in having to report. Now, since they probably won't have information on the basis, my guess is, which is what's complicated this whole bit about exchanging basis information, I would bet that in most cases, those entities will not be required to report the basis. However, as your clients probably should be aware or make them aware if they're not aware of it, this area, we know that when the IRS only got 1099B information with no basis, uh, they just assume short-term capital gain. 
with no basis whatsoever. So your clients have to understand it's going to be up to them to prove their basis. And that'll be the issue. But they also added a paragraph uh, in the, if you read the uh, news release, you're going to see a paragraph there about adding reporting requirements on real estate reporting persons. Apparently there's crypto being used to handle significant payments on real estate in purchases. And the fact that crypto was used in that transaction will now be required to be reported on separately uh, by those uh, you know, real estate reporting persons, that could be attorneys, uh, title companies, all of those things that report the sales of real estate would now have this reporting if digital currency was used for full or partial payment. It also, the regs contain details on the computations and certain other reporting issues that would be involved in this particular set of transactions, how it would work. So how do we, how do we deal with gains or losses? How do we determine, you know, which securities? Because it's going to be obvious complications. If a taxpayer, let's say they do go ahead and they use an exchange, but they have Bitcoin on four different exchanges and you hope they all stay in business the way this past year has gone, but, but we'll hope for that. Then on four different exchanges, you know, or you know, how are we going to handle the fact that, you know, the securities in theory, do we have to, you know, what, you know, I'm assuming they're probably going to say the broker probably says the brokers just worries about securities they purchase, much like we see with stocks and bonds. We don't worry about tracing wash sales outside of what we have in our, in our inventory. I think the same thing would be there, but that would be a limitation on what's being reported and uh, kind of those issues. Also, you know, guidance on issues like that, computations, certain other reporting details they would deal with in this particular transaction. Now, the uh, IRS was asking for any comments to be due by October 30th. If you are involved in the crypto industry, or if you have clients that are heavily into crypto, I realize it's 298 pages, but it's probably not a bad idea to read the 298 pages and determine if you have any comments on the reporting, why you think it would, wouldn't work, any things that should be changed. Uh, probably good to get those comments in. It would be by October 30th. There would be a public hearing then. I think November the 7th was the date. They would hold the public hearing, which often gets called off anyway, but in theory, there'd be a public hearing that day. That suggests to me, though, that we probably expect to get the regulations out sometime early in 24. The justification for pushing this back and you know only requiring them to start tracking purchases and sales as of January 1st of 25 and not reporting gains until you know a year later, gains and losses, is to allow the various entities to design systems you know, or write the systems that would actually track this. My guess is with that justification, the idea is you know, they want to get that out as early as possible in 24 in order to get those systems underway. Do people start writing the systems uh, once they see what the true final regulations would be? Uh, I would suggest, and yeah, if you have somebody who's in it, it probably makes a lot of sense to look at some detail too, because while there may be significant changes in the final reg, it's always possible, I would certainly start planning and you know letting your clients understand how that might work. If you have clients significantly in the crypto space, what type of reporting they're going to get and what steps you might want to take to challenge the reporting if you expect that they're going to get the gain loss computations, especially wrong when they start trying to track. Next up, notice 202362 came out on August the 25th. 
Now, this notice deals with the change in the SECURE 2.0 Act. In the SECURE 2.0 Act, a provision that was to take effect beginning of next year was that any employee plan participant in an employer-sponsored plan. This does not affect uh, IRAs and also doesn't affect not the non-401A type plans, uh, such as simple IRAs or SEP programs. Uh, those are not impacted, probably be a SAR SEP program, I should say. So if you still have one of those old ones, I think it was 97 we got rid of those. You couldn't do a new one. So if somebody has continued to run a SAR SEP that they established before 97, in theory, that's exempted too. Uh, I'm hoping there aren't many of those out there. If you, did, if you weren't around for them, you didn't miss much. Uh, what I would say is it was very difficult to run them. And frankly, the employees could ensure that the plan failed by simply not deferring. Uh, and there was nothing you could do about that fact. It would simply cause the plan to fail because you had to get a certain level of employee buy-in or it failed, which means great. The employees you had when you first started the plan, they may have bought in and been great, but over the years you get new employees and eventually get a set of employees who you know, aren't so thrilled. And that's why I would be shocked to see if there are very, very many SARSEPs that remain in running. I'm sure somebody will tell me they have tons of them. But in any event, those also are exempt. But the problem is now, so I'm above $141,000, my catch-up contribution to my standard 401k, would even include apparently a simple 401k, uh, you know, or other employer plans that allow for deferrals, uh, that has to go into a designated Roth account, meaning that it would be includable in my income, non-taxable when it is paid out to me. Now, the big problem with that is that a lot of plans do not have designated Roth built in. And the main reason for that, to be totally honest, is it's administratively kind of a pain. And frankly, most people want the deduction. We find it's, I've always find it's, you can quickly get people talking about Roth, uh, but the minute they discover there's no deduction, suddenly they want to go back and do the other one. Unless you tell them they can't get a deduction, you know, you're, you're normally dealing with some scenario where, yeah, you're not going to get a deduction anyway, so you want to do a Roth now, then they may consider it. Uh, but otherwise, they don't. And obviously, in the 401k arena, they always get the deduction, which probably makes it harder to sell anyway, since people tend to get very much into current year's tax. And don't worry too much about long-term tax, uh, unless you've got somebody that's really good at long-term thinking and really good at understanding numbers and can deal with present value. And yeah, so as I said, we have not been the kind of uptick in designated Roth accounts that the IRS would have liked or Congress would have liked because Congress wants those to help encourage savings but not cost the Treasury money up front. They like delaying it. Now that rule, as I said, was to take effect next January 1st. As of January 1st, your retirement plan either had to essentially deny catch-up contributions to anybody who makes over $141,000, uh, you know, in their compensation for the year, or they had to, you know, establish Roth uh, plans, a Roth, you know, a Roth account. And those designated Roth accounts have to be open, not just to the people above $141,000, but any employee that wants to make a Roth for their deferral instead of using the regular standard retirement account. 
So the point of that was obviously it was a money raiser and obviously it was meant to increase the use of Ross in those in the structures. Now there was also a little problem because when they tried to fix the law in a conforming amendment, because realize since previously you could not make a, you know, until there was a recent change in the law that finally even allowed a plan to offer a designated Roth account to receive deferral account, you know, to receive essentially uh, the catch-up contribution. Uh, you know, the law was written to say that that would be excluded from your income. Well, obviously, if it's a Roth style, it's not. But there was confusion about what Congress did. They actually repealed Section 402 uh, G1C. And there was concern that when they did that, it might have meant that all catch-up contributions, regardless of which of the accounts you want to send it to, a designated Roth account or a standard deductible 401k account, that it would still have to end up in your income. So that was a problem, shall we say. And there was also concern that it got rid of the rules that limited such catch-up contributions if you were deferring to more than one retirement plan. So a couple of problems there thought gotchas. Now, especially the first one had a lot of people concerned because obviously that was going to be a much more of a problem since, as I said, the people doing catch-up contributions, any who are not above the 141 level, probably were doing it deductible and were not going to be thrilled. But you still had a bunch doing it above 141 and that group might take it as a Roth if there's no other choice. So... That was going to be a real nightmare set of plan update issues. What the IRS did in this notice was simply ruled neither of those problems are correct. Even though you read the law and you believe that by reading the law there's this problem, no, 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 no. It, it's not there. Don't worry about it. It doesn't exist. Um, and they based that on proposed regulations that they issued prior to this provision being added to the law in 2001. Now, honestly, as I recall, it was added in 2001 because of concerns that the result might be what people worried about here today, and Congress added to fix it. But the IRS did have regulations back then that would have attempted to administratively solve the problem. So what they're saying is, well, if we could do that in 2001, then apparently we could still do it today. So if that's not in there, we're just going to take the same position that we were going to take under the Bush administration, when we propose these regs to fix up this kind of problem with the catch-up contribution, we're just going to go ahead and defer, you know, you know, go ahead and just with those kind of regs. And we expect to put those back in the new regs. Now, this is becoming to a large extent because Congress really, really, really doesn't like to admit they foul up a drafting of a law. And, they, and there, there is real concern about whether any bill can get through this year. I think that's going to be a more serious issue. And so they were concerned they might be stuck with a new 174 problem, right? We all know about the problem where Section 174 that was never supposed to that update and Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was never supposed to actually take effect, remember? Right? It would never happen, so it was no problem. Uh, and then it happened, right? Because we could never get the bill through. Some concern that might happen here. So the IRS is going to bail them out there. So even if Congress can't get anything done, uh, it's not a problem for next year. Now, the other big change is they delayed the requirement to use designated Roth account until plan years beginning after December 31st, 2025. 
So that means that next year, the people with earnings above $141,000 will still be able to defer into a standard account. They will not have to defer into a designated Roth account. Now, as I recall, due to other provisions in the, uh, in the SECURE Act, you're allowed to establish the right to defer to a designated Roth account, and that could be put in your plan, but have a feeling that most people will just sit back and do nothing, and we'll wait to see what happens with this provision going forward. But for any, for any event appears, we will not have to worry about uh, putting such a program in our plan until 26 at the earliest. That'll be our delay in this. So that means good news, we don't have to amend our plans and we don't have to do any of that other work currently, which probably for us is good news. Okay, finally, this is a relatively short update this week because frankly, you know, Congress is, Congress is out of session and the IRS is not releasing much and there really weren't major court cases either. So it's just become kind of boring. But the IRS did release this week Revenue Procedure 2023-29 on August the 23rd. This is the premium tax credit percentages that get inflation adjusted. If you remember, in the original Affordable Care Act, the percentages that would be used for how much a person had to, of their household income, you know, they had to contribute toward the cost of policies was you know, was basically set on tables that looked at recalculating average premiums and doing various other computations, but they're effectively inflation adjusted, but based on the growth of premiums versus other issues. So we would have that. And then there is the affordability test for whether or not you're going to be allowed to get the credit, whether or not your employer had offered you affordable coverage. And that percentage is also done by a computation that takes into account the growth in premiums and does a quasi-inflation adjustment based on that. Now, this ruling therefore impacts what's called the apical percentage table. That is the table from which you figure out how much of your household income you're supposed to be contributing toward the cost of the second lowest cost silver uh, program available on the exchange. And we take that second lowest cost silver program percentage we take that percentage and we compare it to the actual cost of the second lowest cost silver program on your geographical area exchange. And if the second lowest cost silver premium is greater than that percent of household income, then you would qualify for a credit up to that difference. Now, if you remember the way the law works, uh, if, if you buy a policy that is less expensive, but still more than that percentage, you'd get a credit, but only a credit equal to the excess of what you actually paid over your percentage of household income you're supposed to apply. Conversely, if you buy a more expensive policy, let's say you buy, you know, let's say the, uh, you know, the most expensive silver policy on your exchange. And when you buy that, you pay much more for the premium. Uh, you're still only going to get the credit for the amount that would have gotten you the second lowest cost version. You're not going to get the subsidy for paying beyond that. Beyond that is you making a personal choice. Okay. And again, and the required contribution percentage, that was where we determined if, if, you, if you have an offer that is affordable from your employer, well, you know, if you have that, you're not, you basically can't qualify for the credit. So that's going to be the issue. But there was one significant change. While the ACA said both those be inflation adjusted, um, 
the Apple percentage was set and basically it's been through two different acts, but for now it is on a fixed, more taxpayer friendly percentages. Uh, remember it used to be, if you got above 400% of the poverty line, you could not qualify for the premium tax credit. Now there is no, no such limitation. It's just if the second lowest cost silver program is more costly to you than the percent of income, household income, then you're automatically in, right? You can qualify for that. Uh, that's the way it works now. Uh, so there's no absolute cutoff for 100%. And the percentages are significantly lower at lower levels than they were under the ACA tables, even with the inflation adjustments. Right, but that's been set and it's going to table is going to be used through 2025. Now, because this ruling has come out for every year since the ACA uh, took effect, they still publish the table. But obviously, the 2025 table, tables through 2025, which will include what will apply next year in 24. You know, again, those have a percentage of zero percent up to 150 percent of the uh, federal poverty line. If you go from 150% to 200%, you raise rateably over that range from 0% to 2% of family income, uh, household income, I should say. If you're between 200% and 250% of the federal poverty line, your income, then we go rateably up from 2% to 4% over that range. If we're at least 250%, but less than 300%, we go rateably up there from 4% to 6%. And if we are at least 300%, but less than 400% of the federal poverty line, we go rateably from 6.0 to 8.5%. Now, if you're above 400%, you're at 400% or higher, then you just 8.5% is your applicable percentage. And that's what stays put. And that stays put through 25. Again, as currently scheduled in 2026, we were going to lose that. So above 400%, you could never qualify for the credit. And the percentages that you have to provide of household income tend to become much higher under the ACA provisions. So that's still to come. The other category, which is inflation adjusted and we're using this year, uh, is the amount of the required contribution percentage. That is set at 8.39% for 2024. And that is the percentage you're going to measure for how much does your employer ask you to contribute toward that coverage? And is that more than 8.39% of your household income? Now, remember, the on the other side of the equation, the test for the employer to see if they've offered affordable coverage from their perspective uh, is actually a different number and a higher percentage, but and based solely on single coverage. So as I say, it, it's one of those odd situations, a little bit different how the rules work. So don't confuse this with the employer number, which is different than this number. That's a different structure. The reason this is out now, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the open season for getting into the new plan starts November 1st. Effectively, to have something start by on January 1st, people need to sign up by December 15th. So the idea is to get these percentages out early enough to get publications together, worksheets together, websites up and running, suggesting how you might compute how much of a credit you could qualify for. And so that's why the number is out now in late August uh, and will be paid attention to come the beginning of November. Now, as I said, not much happened this week. We actually could be under a half hour. This would be wonderful. Uh, this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of August the uh, 20, uh, August the 28th, right? Get the right date. August the 28th of 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your state society of CPAs and 
by Kaplan Financial Education. Uh, if you want to follow me online, I am found on the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, Ed Zollers there. Also on threads, Ed Zollers there. So you can find me either of those places. Um, you also can find me on the Connect sites for the Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington societies. I spend some time around those areas. Uh, also spend some time on Idaho's discussion forum. So if you're on any of those, you can look there for me. You can also email me, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com if you have a quick question. Talk about that there. But otherwise, we look forward to seeing you next week. We did stand our half hour this week, so we can celebrate for that. We will see you next week when there may be more to talk about here on current federal tax developments.